All right. This is AP and Spence. We're two lawyers talking sports law. Uh, we have a lot going on for episode number 36, right, Aaron? Yeah, we do. You know, every week's packed with information, but things are really fluid right now because of the coronavirus. So things are ever changing. Every day is something new. By the time we say these words on the podcast, eight things have changed. Right. And so we're going to get this podcast out and tomorrow there's going to be eight new things going on. And so we're going to try to break it down as real time as you can. I mean, Spencer, when we do these podcasts, we meet, I mean, right before it and we look at some headlines, we pull some information, we plan about what we want to talk about, but then we make iterations up to the moment we start putting these lips to mics. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's right. We, we like to think on our feet. We are, we are here for everyone. We're trying to provide the most accurate and up-to-date information as possible. That's why we meet just before. Plus, it's always a joy just to talk to you, AP. Yeah, likewise, sir. And, and as lawyers, we want things accurate, right, timely, and then we have to think on our feet. Because we're not going. This is not the type of podcast you can put together three weeks ago. No, that's not. That's you do that. You're going to have dinosaurs. We're going to be talking about you know uh, Tyrannosaurus rexes walking around. No, I mean we're we're bringing you the knowledge as it breaks. But that's why it's important for our listeners to listen. If you listen to this podcast two weeks from now, it's going to be outdated. Yeah, we want you listening this weekend. So let's get into it. I mean, we've got a lot to cover. So this last week, a lot has happened. So initially, the initial conference to start canceling fall sports was the Ivy League. Then the Patriot League, yeah. now the MIAC and the CAA. And, in, and part of the CAA is uh, FCS Dynasty and James Madison, the Dukes. They are a spectacular football team and win are in the championship of the FCS almost every year. So James Madison is out. And all these other schools are now being canceled. And they're all talking about moving the FCS to the spring. Is that what you're hearing? Yeah, I've heard some of that. I, you know. This has never been done before. It's going to be pretty crazy. I still don't know how it's going to work with all these other spring sports, all the sports bunched together, sharing buses and planes and gear and practice facilities. That's a lot of people trying to have their season all at the same time. And then seniors you have that are graduating after the fall. Are they then coming back? It's kind of a mess, and it's happening on the fly. Um, I mean, here we are in middle of July. Think about that. When I worked at USC, we already had our our players on campus. We were we were going. We were getting ready. Um, you know, the fall camp was about to start. It usually started, you know, August one, two, or three, right in there. And um, this is we're in a tough spot. I mean, we're kind of mad scrambling at the eleventh hour. Yeah, it's interesting because when the Ivy League canceled their their uh, their fall sports. The, there was only one Division One game where Princeton was going to play Army that was that was postponed, right? Then the Big Ten went to conference only. The uh, Pac-12 went to conference only. The ACC, SEC, and Big 12 are talking about maybe going to conference only. And so we've got a lot of these big power conferences saying they're going to do that. And But now with all these additional schools canceling and conferences canceling their fall sports, it's really it's really kind of shocking. And in fact, this last week, uh, on um, uh, on Friday, there was a, or on Thursday, excuse me, uh, Mark Emmert put out a statement and he said that if the decision had to be made today about the NCAA fall happening, fall sports happening, including soccer, cross country, women's volleyball, um, the decision would be to cancel it, including, including football. I mean, this is, this is what we've feared, right? We've talked about this. Uh, what do you think the chances are we play a season next year? Well, 
you know, I've always said, you know, football's king in America and then it would go. <clears throat> but the, the concern I think is coming down to how do these programs put together a bubble, right? Like the NBA can have a really expensive bubble where everybody goes there for 60 days in one hotel, testing all over the place. They're taking temperatures, nobody in or out except for the players. And they put this bubble together, which can really contain it. And if one person tests, they can immediately contact trace, get that person out and control this little kind of like Truman show world. Right. Where they really can't do that in college. You're going to have dorms and parties and it's just kind of a cesspool of germs. And and here and the problem is, is you're going to just have these outbreaks, right? You're going to have all of a sudden, oh, shoot, nine starters have coronavirus. We're out two weeks. And what does that do to the team? And so I think the only way now you can save football, FBS football, to happen in the fall is if they can show some specific testings. I think everybody thought that the virus would just be really good shape right now. They, you know, I, the NFL is going to do like a plastic mask on their, their helmets. They could do things like that. Plastic masks, cloths on their face. Um, and maybe they have to wear those during practice and competition. But the problem is you can't create a bubble for these kids and they're going to have breakouts. That's and right. so how, what testing can you put in place to show that you're not going to just have, cause this is going to look embarrassing for college football. If it gets started, we're three games in and half the teams are getting breakouts all over the place. It's a total mess. And then they have to shut down the whole thing. And then what do you do? You shut it down three games in. Do you finish it in the spring? Do you scrap it? And so that's the fear. And I think that everybody's kind of looking at the next 10 to 12 days in July to see what protocols they can put in place. But I have serious concerns about football going. So there have been some protocols proposed, and here's what we know about the protocols. So the first thing, these, this is being proposed by the you know Power 5 FBS schools. First thing is test results should be obtained within 72 hours of competition for athletes competing in so-called high-cap contact risk sports like football, basketball, hockey, and lacrosse. So 72 hours, three days before the incident, before the game is played, they're gonna, every, every player is going to have to be tested. So, and, if, and if someone comes back positive, 14-day quarantine for that, for that player. So just like you said, right, like if they have nine of their starters who test positive, all of a sudden, boom, those guys are gone. Now, injuries happen in college football and college basketball all the time. And you're having to shuffle things around, but not to that extent, usually. Yeah, because what will happen is it'll be like an outbreak. I don't foresee it just being, oh, one person got coronavirus. It's going to be these nine guys got coronavirus. Now you just suffered, you know, two-week injuries to nine different people, right? right? And, and that could be detrimental. All of a sudden, oh, the next week now we're playing – you got a powerhouse like BYU coming up on your schedule and you're playing a bunch of walk-ons and the whole thing because you're trying to fill out the roster because you got all these guys with coronavirus and, and it just doesn't look very good. Right. I mean, if you have like, Oh man, we have 17 people on our team right now that are positive and we're trying to bend this together. So it's going to be really tough. Um, And I don't, again, I think it comes down to how are you going to put a bubble in place because these kids are going to go to parties They're going to go to their dorm rooms. They're going to go to chow hall. It's going to be large crowds of people together all the time. Yeah. They're going to go to classes. They're going to go to classes. They're going to, I don't know how you, and there's going to be outbreaks, right? And so it's really tough. I, you know, I'm starting to just, I think the outbreaks right now are just at a, at a bad level and, and politically the coronavirus is sort of like, you know, the plague in a lot of ways. And so um, not to make it, you know, make light of it. I'm just saying that people see it as extremely serious. And so 
because of that, you're going to have some parents going, wait, my son just tested positive for coronavirus. I don't want him playing on this team. What's going on? Right. There's going to be that kind of thing. I don't know how you combat that. If I was an athletic director or a coach, I would be nervous. It's like you're trying to piece together a season in a pandemic and um, and it's pretty tough. And I get why it's so important to do. But I think that colleges are going to have to figure out some sort of bubble system. Well, they've talked about so some of the other um, potential ideas about being able to play this year. So face shields should be integrated. That's something we talked to uh, Todd Hewitt about, right? Yeah, and then yeah. also you've seen some proto some prototypes of that in the NFL. And that's probably what's going to happen in the NFL. And on top of that, a mask should be worn by everyone on the sideline, including when an athlete comes up to off the co off the field to talk with coaches. So the athlete comes off the field, immediately puts on a mask before he goes and talks to the coach. You know, maybe they have those little neck uh, masks that they can pull up and go talk to the coach and they're both wearing masks. Yeah, football already kind of has that where they have these neck warmers that you've seen. Um, everybody has those. All the teams have these thick kind of neck masks that they just wear around their neck. Half the football players already wear them as it is. So you just make sure everybody's wearing one. And then, yeah, you're wearing the face shield. And when, when you take it off, you just, boom, put it up. It's up over your nose. Everyone's wearing one. Now, that could get pretty hot, you know, in the summer. Right. In September and stuff like in L.A., it could be 92 degrees on the sidelines. I've been there. I, I've been, actually, I've told you that story, where I was in Arizona playing the Wildcats. And it was in uh, middle, late September. And it was 113 on the field. Yeah. Uh, so you're wearing face masks. That's going to be really hot and uncomfortable and unusual. But you have to do it. And so maybe everybody's just wearing it. You don't have anyone in the stands. You're doing about all you can do, That's right. but um, there's going to still be outbreaks. That's the problem. You can do this perfect, and you're going to have to just get comfortable. Parents and administrators and family members in the media are going to have to get comfortable that there's going to be some outbreaks. There's going to be some people getting coronavirus. The problem is the media will pick up on this, right? They'll say, hey, BYU, nine players got coronavirus. What's going on over there? Let's talk about it. And that's going to be tough. And those players are out 14 days. And, and so um, this is going to be interesting because right now, you know, media days are getting canceled and pushed that's back. Right. That's right. You know, Nick Saban's talking to people about wearing face masks instead of talking about the football season. It's sort of like everyone's mad scrambling to let's make sure we can get this thing to go. And we only have 10, 12 days left. I mean, we're, this is we're 11th hour. Well, we'll see. We'll continue to monitor this. By next week, we should know some more information about whether or not this is happening. But it's not looking good. It's not looking good at all. And I'm very concerned about uh, FBS football. And, and for that matter, I'm honestly concerned about all sports until the vaccine comes at the collegiate level because they're not able to put a bubble together. That includes basketball. Uh, which makes me nervous because we might not have that vaccine available until February or March. Uh, so I don't know, you know, unless we have some real treatments that are coming together. There's, you know, there's good news about the vaccines. Moderna and some other places have came out where it looks like we're going to have a vaccine. It's just when are we going to have it and when is it going to be safe? Yeah. Um, so we'll see. But I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm, I was cautiously optimistic. Then I was just kind of like, well, no, I started off optimistic. Then it was cautiously optimistic. Now I'm getting a little more hopeful but pessimistic well you see statements like what we read earlier from mark emmert and you're thinking they know they know this is going to be tough like yeah. they're preparing it seems like they're almost preparing us yeah for the inevitable of there's no, not going to be college football this season yeah and, and that's going to be really detrimental um to a lot of programs a lot of staff members losing their job a lot of money it's going to be a mess and it's sort of saying america didn't get it together for the fall uh, you know, and we did, we haven't figured it out yet. And so that hurts, right? Our, our, our school's going to go. I mean, our kids, our Spencer, your kid's going to be in school this fall. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, we love having them around, but 
but you're ready to I get know, them to school. <laughs> no, I know that they're ready to get to school. That's yeah. the thing. They're tired of us being around all the time. When so, when is that decision going to be made? Yeah, who knows? I mean, who knows about youth sports? I mean, they're talking about canceling Texas high school football and 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 sports across the nation. Yeah, high I, school high school sports could not go. Yeah, again, I mean, here we are six months in, and and I don't know, man. I don't know if it's going to go into the fall, into the winter. I mean, are we going to start basketball right in the heart of flu season? I mean, I don't know. You know, so it's starting to, I'm starting to, we didn't get on top of the coronavirus like I thought the numbers were going to be. And, and so right now I thought we were going to look like Massachusetts looking okay. all over the country right. and in New York, but, but we're not. And so for whatever reason, I think I, I'm pessimistic at this point. I think Emmert is kind of la- laying the groundwork a little bit of like, unless you can think of some amazing thing to do as far as testing and programs and bubble. We're going to cancel this thing. All right. Well, we'll continue to monitor this. And as things uh, continue to change and fluctuate every day, uh, we'll do our best uh, at the end of the week to summarize what's going on for everybody. Well, I'll put you in the hot seat real quick, Spence. If you're the athletic director of BYU and you're asked, what what should we do, Spence? What's your opinion on how to get football going or should we go or how would would it look like? What do you you think? Just off the top of your head, what could you do? Yeah. I mean, other than these protocols that we've read, really there's not much more you can do, right? I mean, you can't isolate the kids, right? You can't ath- isolate the, the athletes. They've got to go to class. They've got to go live where they're living. Uh, it's very different than the NBA. You don't, you can't put them all into one single hotel and close and barricade that hotel off. Yeah. That would not be feasible. No. And so you, you, you have to do testing, you know, not just random testing, but testing of everybody <laughs> on a consistent basis. And you've got to have people wearing masks and, you know, athletes have worn masks in the past. That happens. Yeah. And and there are athletic masks that and Nike puts out that yeah. you can wear. You know, get get those. I mean, for heaven's sakes, like, and then on top of all that, if you're out in public, just as a general rule, wear a mask. Yeah. If it's going to save college football and save college sports and save youth sports, there is no basis to not wear a mask, in my opinion. Yeah, don't, don't definitely don't be in a crowd of a bunch of people and you don't have a mask on. Just wear a mask. Uh, let's get through this. Um, so, but yeah, I think that everybody's been crossing their fingers for football. It's getting closer and closer and closer. And I don't think schools have quite figured it out. I'm I'm I, I'm worried about it. Uh, me too. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on it and let everybody know what happens. All right, what does that sound mean, Aaron? It means we have a caller. That's right. And this caller, as as it always has been, is brought to us by Welch, Brun & Green. Welch, Brun & Green is a law firm and based in Portland, Oregon. We specialize in workers' comp, personal injury, social security disability, and what else? Collegiate sports law. Basically, we do consulting services for schools, for student-athletes, for parents, administrators. Basically, anything a compliance office could do, we could do. Give us a call, and we'll help you out. So how do they get in contact with you? 503-221-0870. That's our law firm phone number. Give us a call. Ask for Aaron or Spencer. You can also email us at collegesportsattorneys at gmail.com. Or lastly, you can go to our website, www.wbgatty.com, and all of our information is on there. Give us a call. You won't regret it. All right, here we are. This is AP and Spence, two lawyers talking sports law. And uh, we're going to the phones here today. And Aaron, who do we have on the phones today? We have Jared Blank. Uh, Jared was a guy that I worked with at USC. He worked specifically in football. He was the director of operations 
for USC football and got to work closely with him when I was there, um, you know, in, in a lot of different compliance uh, roles and that sort of thing. I really respected his work ethic. He was really good with people, really smart, uh, really detail oriented. I was super hard on, on USC football because I was charged by Clay Helton to, to be that way, you know, to make sure every little detail was followed and, and Jared did a great job and then we would work, uh, he would put up with all my stuff and, and, and uh, just, you know, I'm sure it wasn't easy and, and he would, you know, help protect clay and the program uh, from a compliance perspective and do a lot of other things. It wasn't compliance was just one small piece of all the things he did. And I'll let him talk about that. Um, but yeah, so I got to form a relationship with him. And so he's worked at Washington USC and he's doing some really cool things now. So we'll kind of get into it, but Hey Jared, first of all, just thanks for being part of the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's uh, great to connect again and, I uh, appreciate the intro. I, I loved working with you because you were so detail-oriented that you pushed us to be that much better with compliance work. So I always appreciated that that level of insight that you provided. Oh, I appreciate that. No worries, man. Well, you you uh, did a great job with it. So um, I was hoping you could just share with us, you know, maybe a little bit about your background, you know, where you grew up, uh, early jobs, jobs in sports, and kind of what you're doing now. Yeah, so I grew up uh, here in Portland, Oregon, and my first real job in sports was actually interning at Sports Oregon, which brings large sporting events to the state and also works on a number of youth projects and philanthropy. Uh, so that was my like real first introduction uh, to the, the sports business world. And then uh, from there, I went to USC. Uh, well, I was actually at USC when I was uh, interning for them, but uh, went to Lincoln High School and then then on to USC. That's, you you went to Lincoln here in, in, in Portland? Yeah, just right downtown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had uh, my uncle and a couple of my cousins went there. So that's uh, that, where my, my family is from uh, the Northwest Pettigrove Street. That's where they grew up. So that's... That's the Lincoln is right in their backyard there. So that's cool. Yeah, that's uh, so you're in Oregonia. I didn't realize you were that much when I was at USC. Uh, I figured you were kind of a Malibu, uh, you know, a <laughs> Malibu Barbie there. But no, you're from the Northwest, man. I like it. I, now you, yeah, ended, I know. <laughs> you ended up at, at Washington for a while, right? You, your football career started there. Uh, so actually, my football career started at USC. I started working. Uh, as an undergrad with football and then uh, got hired on staff, I think just two days after graduation and then was there for uh, four years before going up to Washington. Oh, okay. So, okay. Started off at USC then went to, how did you get to Washington? How did it, was it a job you sought out? Uh, so uh, Steve Sarkeesian was the offensive coordinator at USC at the time. And, uh, he, he'd gotten a head job at the University of Washington and then offered me a spot on his staff uh, to come up and knowing what an amazing place University of Washington was from, you know, growing up in the Northwest it, and working with Coach Sark, it was just a really, really great opportunity. And, and then that's when I, that's when I went up. Oh, gotcha. And then he, he helped uh, bring you back to USC. Is that right? That's right. So he, yeah, we were there for five years and then he got the job at USC and then 
So that's when I came back to my alma mater. What's it like being a, a, a director of ops for a major football program like USC or Washington? I mean, obviously, you know, you got your different roles, but I mean, what is it like? I mean, you're the right hand man in a lot of ways for a, a major head coach at a major program. There's a lot of probably pressure on that. I mean, what, I guess just in your own words and your own experience, what's that, what's that experience like? So I always say it's like, it's being like the director of non-football operations because you're really handling everything that's outside the lines of the, of the field there. Uh, and it's, it's such a fun role in that you, or I, you know, I really got the opportunity to not engage with only coaches, but student athletes and then a number of other cross-functional departments. You know, you're, you're constantly working with marketing and football operation, uh, football equipment. And so you get, you get to touch a lot of areas, which I always thought was exciting. Yeah, that's gonna. And you also you had some challenges, I guess, as well. You had to. So when Sark left USC, and then Clay Helton was appointed the head coach, you became you stayed as the the director of ops for that kind of transition. Um, and you, I think you handled that really well because I would imagine there's new expectations, new ways of doing things. I mean, is that true? Did did you feel kind of a you know maybe a little stress from that? But I, I know you handled it pretty well. So I, I think any anytime a coach, you know, anytime you're working with a new head coach, there's always new expectations, new things that that coach wants to achieve on their agenda. So there's always that learning, that the relearning curve. And I think, you know, for me, it, it's just it's it's an opportunity to learn, and you're essentially learning a new system. While some of the things still might apply that I was doing, it was it was. I think a growth moment, and I think anytime you're in one of those growth moments, there's 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 definitely stress that comes with that for sure. Yeah. Well, now now I know you're you left USC and went into something a little bit different. Um, uh, I was hoping to maybe chat a little bit about that. And that's what you're kind of doing now. Um, now I know Jared, you've always been uh, a runner, right? I mean, for a while. I remember talking about that when I was at USC, and I, my style of running, I would be like, let me get some, you know, let me throw on some. Old Nikes. I'm gonna run a couple of blocks around, you know, the neighborhood. I'm gonna run to Old Spaghetti Factory. Is what you do? Yeah, I run to Old Spaghetti Factory. <laughs> you know, and I, I get in, I get in at least three blocks. You know, and then the side starts hurting, my back's hurting, and I think, well, let me slow down a little bit. Now Spencer here, he's a runner a little bit, right, Spence? Yeah, not to not to not to your level, Jared. I, I do enjoy running, but not to your level at all. Yeah, Spencer, but Spencer runs miles. That's right. and, you know, so you were you're a runner every morning, but but Jared, uh, maybe could you talk about what you got going on since you left uh, USC? Well, sure, but first I'll, I'll say I appreciate connecting with runners on all levels. So whether <laughs> it's three blocks or whether it's miles, it's, it's awesome to be talking to fellow runners, uh, and so that's really cool uh, for me. I I started running really when I was young just to deal with the frustration of like school and life. It was my way of like dealing with that and getting out the door was something that always helped me and kind of just kept that going through, through my life and did track in high school uh, and uh, eventually got into marathons when I was in my professional career um, doing football ops. I ran my first marathon in 2010 and just kind of kept, kept at it and I when I left uh, 
football operations, I left to go train for what was the what is the World Marathon Challenge, running seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. Wait a minute here. So <laughs> you ran seven marathons in seven straight days in seven continents. Yeah. <laughs> I where, mean, where were the marathon? Like, what? Uh, where, where? Where specifically were the three? Were the seven marathons? Yeah. So it it starts in Antarctica, and then from the year we did it, uh, it goes Antarctica to Cape Town, South Africa, Cape Town to Perth. Australia, and then Perth to Dubai, Dubai to Lisbon, um, Portugal, and then Cartagena, Colombia, and finishes in Miami, Florida. Wow, uh, that that's 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 amazing. So you're obviously you're flying between these two places. So like, do you just get off? So you you get done with the run, and I'm guessing you're immediately on a plane or on a boat, you know, to get to these areas. <laughs> Yeah, so it was, yeah, it was all through plane. Um, basically, the way it starts is we meet as a group in Cape Town and then fly to Antarctica. And when we land in Antarctica, they wait till they know the planes can take off. And as soon as that happens, then they start the 168-hour clock uh, for the week. And that's when we start the first marathon. And then it's basically run, uh, finish, get back on the plane, fly to the next spot get off and then do it again. So I have a, a steel trap of a mind, but I used my iPhone calculator to do 26.2 miles, which is the length of a marathon, correct? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Times seven is 183.4 miles. You <laughs> ran in seven days. I honestly, I, I don't know that I've ran that many in my whole 40 plus years of life. Um, that's, un that's <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, and then where do you run in Antarctica? I mean, where you like, I mean, is there like just an ice area that you land in? Like, <laughs> <laughs> there's a, they set up a, a course right next to the airport. It's, it's pretty cool. Like, it's a, basically a 10K course and you just run these loops. And I don't know if you've ever played like Mario Kart, but I love it's Mario not Kart. like a Mario Kart game because you're like on one side of this course, you're like in the sun. And then as you loop around, you're like in this headwind and it's cold. And then you have these like light blue ice patches on the ground that you're trying to avoid as you're running around this area. I mean, how do you train for that? I mean, is it like Rocky style where you're like, you got something on your back, you're in the mountains in the snow. I mean, how do you train for, oh, I'm going to train for running in Antarctica. I mean, is there a well, it, there There isn't really a... I, I, I didn't find necessarily like, uh, I guess an ideal way to train for it, but we happened to get some snow up here in Oregon the year I was training for it. So getting into the trails while it was snowing and, and getting that kind of off footing was really helpful to my process. I think in just getting confident in being in a cold environment while running. Any idea what the temperature was when you ran there? I want to say it was 20 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> oh, because we had, when we got to Cape Town, it was like a split because we were, we are in 75 degree weather. Oh, please, Fahrenheit. please tell me you guys got some video of this. I mean, that's a documentary film. I mean, that's, a, that's unbelievable. Uh, yeah. So we, uh, I have some like clips that we put together uh, with the help from the world marathon challenge people. And then, uh, 
a buddy of mine was actually in Miami and he was able to capture a lot of the race uh, from that. So we have, we have some clips. Of the seven marathons you ran in that, uh, in that world marathon challenge, which one was your favorite to run? So Antarctica was really special to me. Like, cause how often am I going to get out there? Uh, and then I think the other one that really, I really thought was a special place was Cartagena, Colombia. Wow. I mean, that's so different. All the temperatures and the, I mean, did, did you find that difficult when like you'd be running somewhere that was 20 degrees, somewhere else was 75 Would that impact your muscles in a certain way or your pacing or, or uh, pacing for sure. Because, you know, when, when you're in the heat, it's just, it's so different than, you know, when you're in like 40 or 60 degree weather, like when you get into the 75, 80 type temperature for me, it has an, you know, will have effect on it, my pace. So that was, that was definitely something we tried to train for. And in order to get ready for that, like I would do a marathon or a half marathon, like on the treadmill. And then the next day be out in the cold and just kind of that back and forth to get, to get ready and prepare. What, what is your average marathon time? I'm curious. What, what can you run a marathon in? So I was, I think for that event, I was around 432. Oh, I, I, I was hoping to be, you know, I didn't really know what it was going to be. I was hoping to be a bit smoother, uh, in my, in my races. Uh, I ended up getting a, a injury in the third marathon that prevented my left leg from actually like rotating and it really affected my time. Oh shoot. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's unbelievable though. Aaron, uh, you, you, you call yourself a runner, but I'm telling you right now, if you're not able to, to rotate your leg, that's going to cause some problems with running. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, it sounds like it. I mean, that's doesn't sound good. I, you know, what's just fascinating to me. I can't imagine running a full marathon. I wouldn't be able to walk for like 13 days, but he gets on a plane and then the next day let's do a marathon. Oh, and then a third and then a fourth and a fifth. <laughs> when you got to marathon seven, how are you even able to start? I mean, that's unbelievable. You had to have been sore at that point, right? I mean, you've never done anything like that before, right? Uh, so I had done nothing to that level before I had done the San Francisco ultra marathon, which is like running, essentially running two marathons an hour apart. You run the reverse, you start at midnight and you run the reverse course of the marathon and then you get done at like four thirty, And then by five you're starting the next marathon and you're going with the normal, the normal route with the, uh, the people running the marathon that day. And so those were things that I did in order to train for it, but nothing like that. And when I got to the last marathon, I had already kind of figured out how to work with my leg. And so I was learning how to like kind of re recalibrate. And I ended up actually running the fastest marathon uh, that I had that week in Miami. Wow. wow. So I, I guess I'm curious, Jared, you know, I, I, I can tell from the way you're talking about it, you just love running. It's, it's a great, I love running too. It's a great exercise. It's a good way to get out. Uh, you know, it's peaceful. I just, you know, turn music on and get going. But is, is there a reason why you are doing these marathons? Like, do you, do you have a purpose, like do you have a purpose behind these running or is this just running for pleasure or, or what, what are you like? What's your uh, goal here? Sure. So, I, I mean, I, I'm like you. I, I love the sport, and I find a lot of 
a lot of growth within it uh, personally. But and and with that, I also have uh, a passion for education and specifically working for the cause of dyslexia. And so in running these marathons, I actually partnered with the International Dyslexia Association and we were able to raise $50,000 for the organization while I was training and running uh, the World Marathon Challenge and then doing some endeavors post the World Marathon Challenge. Wow, that's so for the listeners that don't know, what is dyslexia, Jaren? Yeah, so dyslexia, probably the best way to describe it is it gets, there's a lot of confusing things with it, but it's really a neurological issue of how we process language. And it can affect students uh, and adults in a number of ways with writing or reading, math, um, fine motor skills. So there's, there's a number of things that it touches. And, um, but I think what's also important to remember about dyslexia, while it may make those, you know, subjects, tough and challenging, it has no effect on IQ and one's intelligence. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we need to share about dyslexia and and keep building awareness to to what it really impacts. Yeah, that's, that's important to know. And yeah, because somebody could probably struggle with grades or different things and people think, oh, they're not very smart. And it's, well, no, that's not, that's not the case at all. They're they're, They have an actual disability that's impacting them, but they're in Is there a reason why dyslexia is especially um, something you're interested in? Yeah. So I was diagnosed with it when I was five years old and dealt with the challenges that uh, that it presents through school and even at one point in elementary school was told I probably wouldn't graduate high school or might not get above a C average. So I definitely felt that pressure of, of what you were describing is like if someone's not getting good grades and they're not intelligent and, and lived with that stigma for a long period of my life. And when kind of looking around as I was an adult, I was seeing the education system wasn't changing much. So it's been really uh, a passion of mine to bring awareness. And also I would go further than passion. I would say responsibility of mine to bring awareness and help, help change the culture around dyslexia in our, in our country and world. Well, yeah. I mean, that, did you write a book, Jared? I mean, I, I've, I've heard a rumor of that. Is that true? Yeah. So I, I wrote a book called Running the Distance. And all the sale proceeds from that book actually go back to the International Dyslexia Association. Oh, that that is awesome. That's if, if one of our listeners wanted to get that book, is there a way they could do it? Yeah. So the International Dyslexia Association on their website, they have a, a bookstore and, and that's where you can purchase it. And uh, we're actually in the process of making an audiobook version two to support the audience that we wrote the book for. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. So, yeah, people that have trouble putting, you know, words together and that sort of thing. If you decide not to uh, do the voice for the audiobook, I'm sure Aaron could could lend his voice. He's got a, he's got a melodic voice. <laughs> Aaron has a great voice. <laughs> oh, man. the uh, that Jared, you're doing some really cool stuff, man. And you've had, an, honestly, an amazing life. I mean, you're, you've ran on seven continents. Uh, you've wrote books. You're raising awareness for great causes. 
You've been at Washington and USC. You've had, I mean, a really an amazing life and a guy that really deserves it. You're like the nicest guy I know. And, and you're, and uh, you are super smart. I mean, anybody that can run football for USC and for Washington is someone that's, that's legit. I mean, it has some abilities, you know, and, and you got a big heart and you're doing a great work. And I would definitely recommend the listeners uh, get on that site, ch- check that book out, you know, uh, get it. And Jared's a good guy, interesting story. And I'd love to see some of those clips of those, uh, those runs for sure. Definitely. I should definitely share those with you. And thanks so much for having me on it. And again, it was such a pleasure working with you at USC and, uh, Glad I got the opportunity to to see the inner workings, you know, from a compliance standpoint and from how we can up our game. And uh, it was awesome. Oh, Jared, I think thanks, man. Thank you, first of all, for being on this podcast. Let's keep in touch, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Sounds great. Have a great weekend. You too. See you, man. All right. Well, I would I would venture to say that was one of the coolest conversations that we've had on this podcast. Jared Blank was incredible. Yeah, he he's he's the nicest guy in the world. Really soft spoken, you know, easy going, down to earth guy. But he's like had incredible jobs. I mean, he's you know director of ops for Washington under Sark, uh, USC under Sark and Clay Helton. And then he's ran seven marathons in seven days on seven different continents. He's ran a marathon in Antarctica. He's wrote a book. He's partnering with uh, with dyslexia. He's been invited to be a speaker at graduations. Um, and you know the guy's our age. You know he's you know late thirties, early forties, whatever it is. And, and he's had an incredible life. And he's very very selfless guy. He's doing some really cool stuff. It's a cause passionate to him, dyslexia. And he's finding a way to make a difference in this world. No kidding. And and I mean, I'm just, I just am thinking from his perspective. I mean, to be the director of football ops for your alma mater has got to be a dream job for just about anybody who's a big sports fan, right? I mean, that would that would be incredible uh, to be the director of football ops for BYU for me, right? That would be so cool. And I'm sure the same would be true for you at USC. Yeah, I mean, you're traveling with the team. You're 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 on the the plane you're on the field you're running things you're you're paid well good benefits you're everybody knows who you are you're in charge of a bunch of stuff uh, i could see you doing it spence i mean if, <laughs> well, if byu is yeah. listening right now spencer kelly director of ops football yeah well we'll see you're not going to beat but, usc uh, no yeah. <laughs> we already did by the way <laughs> oh, um, so so but the thing that's amazing to me was and just what you talked about earlier was jared just he gave all of that up to do something that he's passionate about, right? To to raise awareness for dyslexia, to raise money for dyslexia, to kind of you know be a voice for uh, uh, this uh, th- people who have dyslexia and and the education system and try to better this situation for people with dyslexia. I my hats off to him. He's an incredible guy with an incredible story, and I just uh, I I mean just a hero of mine already. Yeah, this is AP and Spence, two lawyers talking sports law, and that was, we just talked to Jared Blank, and he is running the world basically. <laughs> and he wrote a book. Uh, what? How can they find out that book again, Spence? So you can go to the International Dyslexia Association's website, look it up. The book is called Running the Distance. Uh, check it out. I know I'm going to. I, I want to go get a copy of this and read it. Um, uh, really, really impressive guy. 
yeah, I'm going to get one too, and maybe we'll have him sign it for us if he can. And and uh, what a cool cause. I mean, dyslexia, I mean, that's an un, I think that's a, something that's just uh, not understood that well, and, and people get stigmatized from it. It probably affects a lot of Americans. But here's another way, you know, sports connects to the military. Sports connects to causes in our society. And here's another one. Jared Blank's using sport to raise awareness for an ill in our society. Yeah, and, and I guess the, the only question I have for you, AP, is – uh, assuming that Jared does the seven um, seven marathons in seven days and seven continents again, would you go with him? Would you do those? Would you do those marathons with him? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would fly along and on the plane, okay. and I would stay on the plane and eat spaghetti. So you wouldn't do the actual running; you would just fly with them to these different. Locations. I feel like I'd get tired riding in a car for twenty six <laughs> miles seven days in a row. I mean, just just flying to those continents, I would be so jet lagged. I'd be in bed for two weeks, right. not running. Uh, running seven marathons, I can't imagine running one marathon. The only time I ever wrote, ran a half marathon was the Corvallis half. Yeah, I hadn't trained for it. I couldn't walk, Spence, for like 13 days. <laughs> I mean, I was like pigeon walking around. My feet were bleeding. That was 13 miles. This guy runs 13 miles before 5 a.m. That's impressive. I, That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 uh, he's an impressive guy. I mean, you know, and okay. and uh, but I feel like this is something you could achieve right now and so maybe you need to step up your running game i probably do i definitely he definitely inspired me to maybe step up my running game uh so yeah so that's uh that was a really cool story uh a guy that i think anybody should everybody should check out uh check out his book go to international dyslexia association's website get the book uh i'm sure you won't regret it um and you know on on top of that you know so there still is a lot of stuff going on right out there in the nca and something kind of caught our eye uh, this this last week where uh, the a asu and nca is being sued over the death of a linebacker who played at asu for cte um you know interestingly uh, as i get into the more of the story this young man played football he was a walk-on played football from 2012 to 2014 at asu um, he had a couple of concussions during that time, um, you know, ended up uh, going out into the world and then, and then unfortunately, 2018 uh, uh, committed suicide. And then he, as he was going through uh, his autopsy, it was found to, he was found to have had CTE. Uh, and so this, the lawsuit seeks, it's actually a class, class action lawsuit uh, where they're all now deceased ASU football players from 1952 to, to 2015 are bringing this claim against Arizona State and the NCAA. So uh, for things, anybody who sustained any type of Alzheimer's disease, dementia, Parkinson's, CTE, or other, other neurological disorders. So this is a big deal. Uh, we don't have the exact amount that they're suing for. That, that's not been shared yet. Uh, it's for an unspecified amount. But couple of things to get into here. Uh, you know, doing a class action is a smart move uh, because that allows you to kind of get a wide range of people and then bring a lot of uh, a larger sum of money generally against the school. You know, I know the NFL did something like this a couple of years ago and the NFL ended up settling out of court. But I mean, how, how does the school respond to something like this if, if they're being if they're being sued like this? Yeah, this is going to be treated a little bit differently than, you know, if the NCAA is coming down on you with something. This is where they're going to have to get some outside counsel um, to help them out. And they're being sued and, they're, you know, there's going to be, you know, depositions and interviews and requests for production. And the whole thing's going to happen. And 
there, I'm, I would imagine there's tons of money at stake, a lot of lives at stake, wrongful death, all kinds of stuff. But I know schools do a lot when it comes to protecting the brain with helmets. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about next was, you know, you, you had you had pretty direct connection with the director of equipment there at, and who we've had on the show, Todd Hewitt. Um, and, and so what are some things that schools are doing nowadays to protect against brain injuries and things like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty state-of-the-art stuff. I'd love to get Todd Hewitt back on the radio, you know, here on the podcast, and he can talk a little bit about it. But, you know, there's there's new helmets that have extra padding, blow-up uh, inside of padding, and, and state-of-the-art cushioning on the inside that impacts, like when, when it's helmet-to-helmet, it'll impact a certain way. Uh, so the helmets have came a long, long way to protect uh, heads when they're colliding. Right. And then a lot of the rules have changed where you can't have helmet to helmet contact or targeting, that sort of thing. Right. So there's been a lot of uh, steps from the NCA rules to tweaks on the padding of the helmet to make things as safe as possible for student athletes. Um, but in the end, you have people colliding at each other with heads out and you have violent hits. I mean, I've been on the sidelines and I'm five feet away from some of those hits. You can't really capture it when you're on TV. You know, you see it, maybe you kind of hear it, but when you're five to seven feet away and you hear those people collide into each other at full speed, both directions, the impact sounds like a car wreck. I mean, right. it's bam, bam, you know, and then they hit the ground. You do that all day, every day, all season. I mean, that's that's going to take a toll. And I think it's linked to depression and and suicide maybe that's and right. death and a lot of different things. And so it's really, really serious. So I know the rules are doing all they can to protect student athletes' health. And the helmets are a big part of that. I know that like if a helmet falls off and you're in a play, you have to come out for a play. That's right. Because they have to, they want to readjust that and make sure. Because it used to just be throw your helmet back on, get back out there, and the kids putting it on all sideways. And it's no, they want you off. They want a professional to come in, make sure they have it fitting right. And Todd Hewitt and his staff would spend a long time making sure helmets fit perfectly, and then they were the best, uh, most custom safe helmet that we could have. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this lawsuit. Um, you know, I'm it'll more than likely it'll probably settle. I would think. Uh, question is how much it's going to settle for. At Arizona State's a public university, so they'd have to they'd have to let everybody know about what they settle for. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see if that happens. Um, how much fight Arizona State and NCA do against these against this this individual and other people who are bringing a lawsuit. So we'll we'll keep an eye on it. It was just something that kind of caught our eye, right? Something that's kind of interesting. Yeah, and I think there it's been kind of a hot button issue. I mean, it's been brewing out there. Will Smith, I think, did a movie about concussions uh, recently. Um, you know, it it. Yeah, that was more focused on the NFL, right? Which is which has yeah. long, which has settled a while ago, but but there's still issues with with brain injuries and things like that related yeah. to NFL play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's still there, and I think it's going to be uh, a coming wave for colleges. You know, I think helmets get certified and signed off to meet certain requirements of safety. There's a lot, a big matrix to it, and these are a lot of these are to prevent lawsuits and to keep people safe. But it's something to keep our eye on because it could be something that's a coming wave of problems. That's right. Well, we'll uh, keep an eye on it. Uh, make sure that we do our best to inform everyone. We'll also keep our eye on everything that's coming up with the coronavirus and more. It sounds like even more coronavirus cash casualties that could be coming down the pipe so uh keep an eye on everything we'll do our best and and aaron and aaron's going to go out right now and start and go run a marathon isn't that the plan i'm going to go run to spaghetti factory it's about three blocks away and uh, that's about as far as i can get right now spence (laughs) but you i mean every they say every chinese uh how does that proverb go every 
journey starts with three blocks of running or, or something, something like that. Yeah, something like that. I, I think Ben Franklin said that. It was Abraham Lincoln, actually. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. Also, don't trust everything you read on the internet. Abraham Lincoln said that. Yeah, yeah he did put that on the internet. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We hope everybody has a great weekend. Stay safe out there. Um, and uh, And we'll keep everybody up to date. See you guys.